Our passage this morning is going to be in Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Before I read the scripture this morning, I'm going to tell you some things that you probably already know as it relates to fear. Fear can be both good and bad. We can have good fears and we can have unnecessary and bad fears. Fear can be good in the sense that we can avoid things that are dangerous or things that we ought not to do. You know, some of us may have a fear of heights. I think to a certain degree, all of us have a fear of heights. Some of us just maybe have a greater fear of heights than others. But generally, we all have a fear of heights because to be up high is to be potentially at risk or in danger. And so we should avoid danger as much as possible, that this fear guides us in correct and safe actions. But there are bad fears that because of our fear, we avoid doing things or not doing things that, that really are for our benefit. You know, maybe if you have children or maybe some of us as adults still have a fear of the dark, right? Which really hard to send a kid to bed when they have a fear of the dark. We have to say, no, darkness is good. It helps you sleep, right? Get those blackout shades going in the summertime. But there are good fears and there are bad fears. And the Bible talks quite a bit about fear. There are certain times in the Bible where we're told not to fear. Don't fear certain things. Don't fear man. Don't fear the things of these worlds. But there are also things in which the Bible teaches us that we ought to have a healthy fear of. Chiefly and namely, we are to fear God. And so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be talking about a good and right fear of the Lord. We're going to be instructed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and what that means for us. We're going to look at why we should work out our salvation in fear and trembling, how we should do it, and what result it'll produce in our lives and in the world around us. And so let us read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 together. If you're able and you are willing, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy word? Beginning in verse 12, the word of God says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, amongst whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of God this morning. You may be seated. So a number of verses to deal with this morning, but of first importance or first order in this passage, there is a primary command which is found in verse 12, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And like I said, we're going to ask the question, why, how, and to what result? But let us start 
with the why. Why is Paul commanding the Philippians and us by extension to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? We could misunderstand this command if we're not careful. You see, some may be led to believe that to to work out your salvation with fear and trembling is because our salvation is on the line. That if we go astray, if we make a mistake, then our salvation can be lost. Right? We're to fear and tremble because we could lose our salvation at any moment, or we're to fear and tremble because God is scary. This is not, I believe, what Paul is intending us to take away from this passage. And let me just reiterate once again that we are saved by grace through faith, and that salvation is kept secure in heaven for us by the mighty hand of God. Just as a reminder, let me read from Romans 10.10, a great verse that speaks of our offer of salvation through Christ Jesus. It is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 5.9 also says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus. And so if it does not mean that our salvation is on the line, that we're to worry about our state and our security before the Lord, what then does it mean? What we need to begin to understand is that fear and love are actually paradoxically united in the Christian experience. That we are to love God as our good and gracious God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ. We're also to fear him in a way that brings him honor and acknowledges who he is. And he is much higher, much more exalted, completely separate than us. You see, the Bible uses these words fear and trembling often to describe how we're to relate to God. And it's not meant to be seen in a negative, that this is a way in which we honor God. It's an honorific to stand in fear and trembling, knowing how great and powerful and mighty he truly is. When the commandments were given to the people of Israel, they stood in awe of this great God who sat atop Mount Sinai. I'll read for you a little excerpt from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. It says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Here we're told to fear the Lord and to obey the Lord and to love the Lord. That all these things are united together. Proverbs 9.10, a familiar verse to many of us in this room. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. If you want to live a wise life, then what is required is that you fear God. Psalm 211, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. To fear God is not a bad thing, but it's what you and I as Christians are called to do. 
It is the proper response to who God is, that we acknowledge who he is, that he is God, he is Lord, he is almighty, and he is powerful. Now we know he has worked his power for our good, but nevertheless to stand in front or to be aware of the power of God is to tremble at it with holy reverence, holy fear. This is a proper response for you and I to the gospel, to the message of salvation. It's a sign of our humility before the Lord, that we are his creation and he is almighty creator. We're not saved by our obedience, but having a holy reverence and saving faith in God produces obedience in us. And Paul speaks of this working out your salvation with fear and trembling as a means of obedience of here in the Philippian church. It's a proof of their redemption. He starts off by saying, as you have already obeyed, continue obeying the Lord. Verse 12, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why is it that the Philippians were able to walk in obedience before the Lord without Paul there? Because they didn't have a fear of Paul, but they had a fear of the Lord, a healthy fear of the Lord, that though Paul was absent, they still walked with fear and trembling before the Lord. It was a sign of their commitment, not to Paul, but to the Lord. And this is a good thing. Right, the litmus test of true faith, of true obedience, is how do you behave when no one is looking? You know, as parents, we seek to raise our children to be good citizens, to be obedient, to act as they ought to act. And we may find that when we're there, their behavior is right on point. But there's always that time, either when they're young, but particularly when they're older, when you ask yourself, have I done a good job in raising my child. You send them off to college or they move out of the house and you wonder if you've done a good job. How do you know? What is the litmus test? It's not their obedience while you are present with them, but it's their obedience when you are absent from them. You see, if their, their obedience was based on their fear and trembling of you as mom and dad, then it requires you as mom or dad to be there to enact that obedience. But if their fear and trembling is not because of you as mom or dad, but because of the Lord, well, the Lord is always present. And so we often hope and pray that our kids will respond as such. In the same way, as a pastor, here is Paul encouraging these Philippians to continue on in obedience, though he is absent from them. Remember, he is in Rome. He's under house arrest. Philippian church is back in Philippi, and he encourages them to continue on obeying the Lord, to continue working out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is the proper response to who God is and what he has done for you. Similarly, as a pastor here with you in this room, I am far more concerned with your demeanor, your behavior, Monday through Saturday, than for the hour and a half that you are here present in this room. My hope is that the fear and trembling of the Lord guides you in all love and obedience before him 
throughout the week. And to be honest, I'm troubled by the way in which we are so naive about who Jesus is. In many ways, we're, we're too casual with him, too blasé. We speak of Jesus without that fear and trembling. We take for granted his, his kindness, his humility, his mercy, but yet as we studied last week that Jesus is God, always has been, high and exalted, pre-existent, equal with God, highly exalted and enthroned, and will judge the earth one day. This is who Jesus is. He is worthy of our fear and trembling, and yet we fail to do that. We don't take him seriously enough. And so let me remind you of how powerful how majestic, how worthy of our fear and trembling and thus our love and service and obedience Jesus is by pointing, to, by pointing you to an image of the exalted Jesus. Not Jesus humble as a man here on this earth, but as he truly is in his divine nature. You see glimpses of this in a number of places in scripture, but maybe none so vivid and awe-inspiring, worthy of our fear and trembling, than Revelation 19. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, this is Jesus. The Apostle John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a fearful image of Jesus, one that ought to make us tremble, but in holy reverence, not because he comes to judge our sin as his redeemed people that has been judged and put away in his flesh and his sacrifice on the cross, but nevertheless, this is who Jesus is. He is God. And thus, as we're called to fear him and tremble him, we're called to acknowledge his divine nature, his highly exalted position. And what that produces in us is a holy reverence, greater love and obedience. I don't want you walking away here being afraid of Jesus, but I want you to honor him for who he is. He's given glimpses of himself before and his disciples. I think of the transfiguration when he was here on this earth. I'll read for you briefly in Matthew 17, verses 2 through 8. It says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. This is a glimpse of the Jesus that we just saw in Revelation that the disciples are getting a sneak peek at here in his life and ministry. 
Verse three, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Here we have a mix of the two, our gracious and loving savior, but also that glimpse of that divine, awe-inspiring picture of who Jesus is in his full and unabashed deity. The disciples both feel comfortable and fearful of him at the same time. Much like a young child might feel safe with their father because of his might and authority, but yet know the power that their father has and thus fear them and respect them. And this is what leads us into our obedience, having a healthy understanding of who Jesus is. We must obey and follow the example of fearing Jesus. We need to do this individually so that as we walk with him, we walk devoted with him, to him. But it's something that we must also do as a church. One thing I haven't noted in this text that you can't accurately see reflected in the English, but this command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it's not a command to an individual. That this word, these instructions, they're in a plural form in Greek. This is Paul saying, as a church, as a community, as a blood-bought group of brothers and sisters in Christ, together work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be devoted to him together. So my hope is that that would be us. That as Harvest Liberty Lake Church gathers, as we commune on Sundays and during the week, that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, yes, individually, but also together. I think of Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. It says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. As the day draws near that Jesus is coming again in all of his might, in all of his glory, may we be found regularly meeting together and stirring one another up to faith and good works as we work out our salvation together. Your Christian walk, your faith in Jesus is not meant to be an individual experience. Christ has redeemed a people for himself, men and women, brothers and sisters. So there's some of the why. Now let's look at the how. And as I said, let's pay special attention to the corporate nature of this command, this instruction. How are we to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Look with me at verse 13. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I may confess to you, this is one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. There are many to, to list as your favorites, but for me and as you hear me preach often, you'll probably hear me reference this verse. 
It's a very important verse. It sums up something that I think is vital for our understanding, that God is sovereign. God is in control. So much so that it is his work in us that produces our obedience to him. The Bible speaks of the same principle in many ways, that a, a person must be born again, must be given new life. Ephesians 2 talks about we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and God has made us alive together in Christ. Other words, which may carry some baggage for you, but are nevertheless in the scripture, are words of election and predestined. But let me just encourage you to take God's word as God's word. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is not meant to be seen as a negative thing, but a positive, an encouragement that as we seek to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, it's not a work that we do on our own, but it's a work that God does in us. As we seek to work, God must first work in us. It's not that God helps those who help themselves. It is God giving us new life. And this is one, one of the wonderful promises that we have and get to experience as the new covenant. That this is what God's people have been waiting for, struggling to achieve a righteousness on their own, which was forever out of our reach. But now given a promise that God is going to do the work, not just for us, but in us. New Covenant passage that is spoken of in the Old Testament, the promise of the New Covenant. Look with me at Jeremiah 31, 31. This is what God's people were waiting for for many, many years. We'll read verse 31 and then verses 33 through 34. Book of Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. What is that new covenant? Verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Paul is simply saying the same things that we read in Jeremiah. That for God to work in you, to will and to work for his good pleasure is to have God put his law within you, to write it, on your heart. It is the promise of the Holy Spirit coming and dwelling within you as a believer. Other passages that speak of this very same thing. Galatians chapter 5, you may be familiar, familiar with it. What are the fruits of the Spirit? How do we achieve those? How do we produce those in our lives? Well, it's a work of God. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says this, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing things you want to do. See, in our natural state, we are in the flesh, and we are opposed to the things of God. But God sends us his spirit, and it's through his spirit working in you that you're able to do what God has called you to do. And what is that? Galatians goes on to talk about the fruits of the spirit. 
verses 22 through 25. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. For sake of time, I won't read the entirety, but Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is another passage. Talks about God preparing good works for us to walk in, that we are a new creation. But nevertheless, there is this ability on our part, even as born-again believers, to resist the Spirit, to walk in our old way of life and not the new way of life, to give into the flesh and not the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 warns us, do not quench the Spirit. Do not resist the Spirit. But when we speak about the instructions of how to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, know that this is foundational, that it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's making you new from the inside out. Your desire to love him, to obey him, to serve him does not come from yourself, but it is from the Lord. And so the how, in some ways, is a work of God, but yet we're given specific instructions as he goes on to say, well, how does this look like practically for you? It's not just enough to say this is a work of God in you, but yet we are in some ways paradoxically called to still obey in very specific ways. And so Paul goes on, to say in verse 14, to do all things without grumbling or disputing. Here comes some of the practical ways to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And we may think it requires something far more glamorous, maybe extravagant, but you're just telling us not to grumble and not to quarrel. And the answer is yes, because these things are very important to the Lord and could be far more destructive not only to ourselves, but to the community as a church, then we realize, do all things without grumbling or disputing. What is grumbling? Well, grumbling refers to whispering complaints, talking in secret against someone and making negative comments about others behind their backs, right? You know grumbling when you hear it. You can grumble to another person, or sometimes you can just grumble to yourself about some of these things. And what is this disputing? Well, disputing is the, the more visible, outward, quarreling and debating in ways that are divisive and raise doubts. It may seem like a small thing to us, but this is not a small thing to the Lord with regards to his bride, the church. Because these two things, grumbling and disputing, produce division. And much of Paul's emphasis in this part of Philippians has been unity. Have this mind amongst yourself that is also in Christ Jesus. To be humble, to count others more significant to yourselves, right? Unity is his focus. And what is a threat to unity? Grumbling and disputing. And God has always taken this seriously within his people. And he has gone to great measures to encourage us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling as it relates to this type of obedience. Let me read 
1 Corinthians 10, 9 and 10, this is Paul reflecting on how God has dealt with the sins of grumbling and disputing in the people of Israel when they were wandering in the desert prior to entering the promised land. Paul writes, warning the Corinthians, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. If you recall in those desert wandering narratives, the people of God grumbled against God and against their appointed leaders and God sent serpents to bite them and to kill them nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of all ages has come. Grumbling, quarreling, no small matter to the Lord, particularly as it leads to division within the church. And so I ask you, have you grumbled lately? Are you involved in disputing. You know, I can remember growing up and, and going to church, and on the drive home, it was almost kind of like a play-by-play review of how service went. And I don't know about you, but my family always seems to point out things that could have been better, things that we did not like, that quite honestly may not have been of big importance, but they were important to us. Pastor's jokes weren't funny today. You know, the songs weren't to our liking today. I had to sit next to this person who was singing way too loud and off key, right? And so oftentimes our review of Sunday service was just a session for us to grumble, for us to complain, for us to dispute. And I'm sad to say that being the youngest in this family, this wasn't something that I started, but that I grew up with that was passed down to me. And so for many of my younger years, I did not have a high view of our local church. While I did come to appreciate it very much as I grew into my teenage years and matured in Christ, praise the Lord. But that grumbling, that disputing in the car ride home gave me a view of church as a young child that was not positive and kept me from entering in to that community of faith for quite some time created division. It wasn't a church split over it, but our family was personally divided from that church. Now, I'm not saying you can't give us feedback. In fact, we're young. We're still figuring things out. We appreciate your feedback if it's given in a spirit of humility and graciousness. We don't do everything right. But is it feedback or is it grumbling and disputing? without a purpose other than to tear down. This was something that must have been happening within the Philippian church. We looked at a division that would take place between two women that we're going to talk in more depth about in Philippians chapter 4, but there was some sort of divisive issue between two women in the church of Philippi, a woman named Eudea and one named Syntyche. They were at odds with one another. Paul is encouraging them to reconcile with one another, that they were co-laborers in the gospel with him prior, but yet something was bringing separation. And so what was his solution suggested later on? Well, Philippians 4, 8, he instructs them. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Do not grumble, but praise. Do not complain, 
but encourage. Speak highly of the church. Speak highly of the people that Christ has redeemed. We speak highly of the church, not because the church is perfect, but because the perfect Savior loves it. He gave his life for her. Speak highly of other Christians, not because they are perfect, but because the perfect Savior died for them. If you do not have positive speech towards the church and other Christians, then I think you are quenching the Spirit. Because God loves his bride. Jesus loves his bride. His Spirit fills the church. And our words are far more damaging than we realize. Far more damaging. James 4, 8 through 10 speaks of the dangers of our tongue. But no human can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless the Lord, our Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes forth blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Instead, let us take Paul's encouragement from Philippians 4.8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is to fulfill the command to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The way you speak about the bride of Christ matters. I'll be honest, it doesn't matter how much flattering comments and praise you give me if I find out you speak negatively about my wife, then there may be reason to fear and tremble. How much more so with Jesus and his bride? I'm not nearly as powerful as he is. Some of you are looking at me like, I could take him. He probably can, but I'll try. So we've looked at the why, We've looked at the how, and so what is the result that this produces of working out our salvation with fear and trembling? God uses it for his purposes. We're told to do all things without grumbling or disputing, that we, in verse 15, may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. When you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, you will draw attention, not just from other believers, but from people outside of the family of God. It says that you will shine like lights in the world. In the midst of a crooked and dark generation. I'm reminded of another one of my favorite verses in scripture, one in which we actually shared online as an encouragement of a verse of the week, Matthew 5, 16. We're told in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. When you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, when you're led into greater obedience and devotion before the Lord, 
You bring him honor and glory. You shine your light on him that he may be praised. And we do this by holding fast to the word of life, holding fast to the gospel, living out its implications, not just speaking it, but living it out. And we shine bright as a result. Have you ever noticed how bright the stars are when you get out of the city? Ever had that camping experience of looking up and be like, where were all of these back home? It's astounding. As we live in a darkening world, corrupted by sin, if we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, then we will be shining a light all the more that we are indeed a children of God, that we share in the blamelessness of Christ, and people will be drawn to that light and Lord willing, have that light of life enter into their hearts as well. Your life demonstrates what is important to you, not just your words. You know, we're coming up on the end of the year, getting close to that New Year's. People are going to start buying some gym memberships, paying for some personal trainers. Let me ask you this. How many of you would be willing to take fitness or health advice from someone who is more out of shape than you are? Not me. Even if it's right, right? Sometimes it actually is good advice. They may know a good form, a good exercise, a good exercise routine, a good diet. They may know it, but because you can see that they're not living it out, it makes their advice easy to disregard. In the same way, we may know the gospel. We may believe the gospel. We may be able to articulate the gospel, but if we're not shining as lights, if we're not working out our salvation with fear and trembling, if we still walk in the flesh, then our message will be hard to hear. But yet the opposite is true. If you live according to this great promise, this word of life, then you will notice that opportunities will come. People will ask you questions. Before I worked at a church, before I um, was in full-time ministry, I was doing the whole retail sales things, food services, and working with all kinds of people. And I remember times when I was walking closely with the Lord, devoted to the Lord, getting questions from people. You mean you really believe what you believe, don't you? I would hear people say that. And you may have too. You may, when you find that you're living before the Lord, working out your salvation with fear and trembling, that you're asked questions like, you mean you really read your Bible? You mean you really pray and go to church every week, every day? You mean you really wouldn't cheat on this test or this exam or this situation? You mean you really wouldn't just take money that that didn't belong to you, even though there's probably no consequences? You mean you really wouldn't wait to, to have sex until marriage? Like, you really believe these things? If you're working out your salvation with fear and trembling, then you could say, yes, I do. And that may speak louder than anything that you could physically say. People watch how we live. I found it interesting. LifeWay just released 
some research on evangelism. And they found that sharing a Bible verse or using some sort of tract or physical display to help explain the gospel to someone made almost little to no difference in a person's willingness to kind of listen and hear the gospel message. However, sharing your personal testimony or what God is doing in your life had a profound impact on people they found through this research study. I'm not saying don't share Bible verses. By all means, you should share Bible verses and use the tracts as well or any sort of way that you've been trained to share the gospel. But I found it interesting that the lived experience of someone working out their salvation with fear and trembling showed far more effectiveness in evangelistic conversations than these other tools. But here we have it, that you shine as a light in a dark and crooked generation, that people can see you living out what you believe and that you really mean what you say. And so that's one of the results that we find by working out our salvation with fear and trembling is that you are a light to a dark world and that you could lead other people closer to God through your obedience to God. There's another result, which may be more special to me in some ways, but you increase the joy of your pastor. And so here is Paul speaking at the end of this, encouraging them that as they hold fast to the word of life in the day of Christ, he says at the end of verse 16, that I may be proud that I did not run in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. See, your obedience encourages your leaders. It encourages your pastor. It encourages other believers who are pouring into you that God is doing a work, that I can see the fruit, and that maybe I could even encourage you because sometimes we don't see the own, our own fruit in our own life but it is an encouragement to the church and to the people of the church and here specifically to Paul as a pastor of these Philippians. He says, this wasn't in vain. All my suffering, all my toil, all my works, God has used it in your life. That even if I'm to be poured out as a sacrificial offering, you see Paul still firmly expects that his life is drawing to an end but he's able to rejoice because he sees what God has done with his life, that it's reproduced and multiplied in the lives of the people in the church. And so he's, he's able to rejoice. Even though it's full of toil and struggle, it is the great work that he has been called to. And I hope to share in Paul's toil, to pour out my life for the church, Christ's bride, for some of you here, as you gather week after week when this local fellowship, I hope to do this for as long as the Lord will permit me to do so. And I would simply ask, will you help share in my joy by working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Would we share in each other's joy as we together work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there you have it. The why, the how, 
and to what result. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that through your spirit, God, we in this room would work out our salvation with fear and trembling, with a holy reverence, a holy respect for who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our mighty and creator God. God who loves us, God who made a way for us to be forgiven and brought near to you once again, and a God who equips us through your spirit to walk with you. May we be encouraged by each other's obedience. Lord, and may we encourage one another as we indeed go astray at times. Lord, build this church. Help us to be found mature in you, Lord Jesus, and help us to reach others with the good news of your gospel, both through our public proclamation, but also through our lived proclamation of obedience to your word as well. Pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.